Welcome to the Wellspring Church Podcast. We're an international church family who wants to see Jesus' love transform communities. This recording is a sermon from our Sunday service and will take you deeper into the Bible in a real and relevant way. Anyway, it's about time that we introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Reverend John Andrews. Come on, give it up for him. Give him a hand. And I don't want to take any more time. So uh, we love you, John. He's a friend of ours. So let's just pray for us and him. Heavenly Father, may we be good soil for the word that you want to plant today, that you want to share with us today. And we pray, Father, for John that you would bless him as he blesses us. And Lord God, that he would speak the word freely and powerfully under your anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you so much. Bless you. Good morning. morning. Yes, it's still morning. Come on. It's still morning. Um, So good to see you. I know there are people online. There are people in the overflow. And uh, you are here. David, thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for allowing me to be part of uh, the Wellspring journey and to be part of this wonderful series that we're beginning uh, as well. And as you can see from the screen, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of First and Second Peter. And uh, the theme of our, our series is Strangers in the Night. I feel like a song coming on there. Uh, Strangers in the Night. And, uh, and hopefully this will really help us as we go forward in the Lord. So I'm going to dive straight in. Uh, I know that uh, everyone is working very, very hard. So let's just jump straight into the Word of God. And if you've got a Bible with you and you want to follow a short reading with me, I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll kick off verse 1 and jump straight in there. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, don't worry. It's a relatively short reading. But if you do have one either on your phone or your tablet or even pages like mine, uh, then why don't you grab it and just follow it uh, with me as we jump in. So I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, and it says these amazing words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Wow, what an introduction. He doesn't just say hello and jump in. That's a a seriously dense introduction, and there is so much in just those first couple of verses which are sort of setting up the idea of where we want to go and where Peter wants to take us. So though Peter writes way back in the first century to a particular group of of followers of Jesus, these ideas travel to us in the 21st century. And Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are scattered across different parts of the Roman Empire. And he helps us with that. I don't know if we've got our, we got our images up or not. Have we got a, are you okay? Um, and so you, you'll, you'll get a little image, a little map coming up, which will sort of help you position this. So, so if you look at our map, the area to which Peter is writing is sort of up on the top right-hand side. So the bits in red, uh, though it's not coming out too clearly, but I hope you can see that. You've got Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and 
Pontus. And sort of modern Turkey is the area that Peter is writing to. And he's writing to Christians who are positioned in that. Now, why is he writing? Understanding why he's writing will really, really help us to read the book. And the church... The followers of Jesus are coming under more and more persecution from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of people. And they're coming under pressure. And Peter is really writing to them to help them in the pressure. He's trying to encourage them to hold on to what they have in Christ Jesus. So so in the midst of the persecution, he wants to write to them to remind them of, of three big ideas. And you'll find these as you read through the text. He wants to remind them, first of all, of who they are in Christ. So when you're coming under pressure, when you're getting persecuted, when you're getting a bit of a hammering in society, it's really important we remember who we are. That we remember who we are, not just as humans, but we remember who we are in Jesus. And that's a big idea that's not just in Peter, that runs, of course, through the whole biblical narrative. And then he wants to remind them of this. This is a hard one. This is where it gets a bit, bit more tricky. He wants to say to them, yes, you are suffering. He doesn't ignore that. In fact, he really gets quite open and direct about their suffering. But he says this, you are suffering for Jesus. And he reminds them that Jesus also suffered. Now, that's not a great selling point if you're trying to recruit new followers. But actually, Peter and the believers in the New Testament were more shocked if we didn't suffer for following Jesus than if we did. So the world in which they lived meant that they were more likely to suffer. And he reminds them, you're not just suffering for suffering's sake, but you're suffering for Jesus. And remember, he says, Jesus also suffered. And then the third big idea he reminds them of as you read through the letter is that Jesus is coming again. We were singing about that in our, in our final song, reminding us that not only did Jesus die and rise from the dead, but he's coming back. And that's really, really, really good news. And if you're under pressure and you're feeling the weight of persecution, being reminded that one day Jesus will come back for you and that he'll finish all of this, he'll end all of this, and he'll bring you to an eternal reward with him, that's good news. Now, it doesn't necessarily take away the pain of suffering, but it allows us to get a sort of a bigger perspective of the suffering as we suffer. So he wants to remind them who they are. He wants to remind them that they're suffering for Jesus as Jesus suffered. And he wants to remind them that the Jesus they're suffering for is going to turn up one day and rescue them. So when you read First Peter, uh, 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 the letter of 1 Peter, that's sort of what you're getting. The difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter is is just subtle, but it's there. And in 2 Peter, Peter turns his attention away from external persecution, persecution that's coming to the church from the outside, and he turns it to sort of internal issues. And he's really worried about two big ideas as you read 2 Peter. He's worried about corrupt leaders. It's really upset about that, that certain people are not leading the church well. And Peter wants to highlight that. And he's also really worried about dodgy theology. So he's he's worried about ideas that are coming out about Jesus that actually he needs to challenge and refute 
so that the church can be built on a really solid foundation. The other very subtle thing about 2 Peter, which you'll notice if you take the time to read it, is it's very tender. And Peter is probably has in mind the fact that the shadow of persecution is also coming on him. Maybe he knows that his days are numbered as a follower of Jesus. And in fact, not too long after writing what we call 2 Peter, Peter was executed for being a follower of Jesus. He literally was martyred, uh, suffering as Jesus suffered. Uh, and tradition tells us, of course, he was, he was crucified upside down um, uh, uh, as a way to die. So, so Peter, there's a tenderness in that second letter. So big ideas, writing to a suffering church to remind them who they are, Remind them that their suffering is in Jesus as Jesus suffered and remind them that Jesus is coming again. So that's the sort of backdrop that's going on. There is a, a backstory that's going on to Peter's writing, which is really important. And in fact, all of the books of the Bible normally have a backstory. And it's worthwhile trying to find out what that is because it can help you sometimes to hear the words of each letter differently. Now, in, I've said all of that to say this. This sort of explains the big dent introduction. All right, Peter doesn't start with a bit of small talk and just lead us in gently. He's like into overdrive right from the beginning. And I don't know if you noticed, he, he not only gives us three big ideas, which we're going to lean into now, but he almost affirms those ideas by bringing the Trinity to bear on the introduction. He talks about the Father, he talks about the Son, and he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then he says, grace and peace to you in abundance. All right? So he really starts strong and heavy because what he's about to talk about is tough and difficult. He knows that Christians are suffering. He knows that it's not easy. He knows that many of them are being discriminated against and even losing their lives for being a follower of Jesus. So he wants to start right at the beginning with dynamic, powerful ideas that if they grab those ideas by faith, they will become bedrock, uh, solid, foundational anchors in their lives that will hold them in the midst of this. And what does he say? Look at his introduction again. It'll come up on the screen for you. He says, to God's elect, strangers in the world. Now, I know some of us are strange, uh, but strangers in the world and scattered throughout Pontus. Okay? So he talks about God's elect. We are God's elect or chosen. We are strangers in the world. And we are scattered throughout. And then he, he names the area, Asia Minor, where we are scattered. Now, if you've got the English Standard Version Bible, they, they translate that even sort of more, more strongly, almost aggressively. The NIV is beautifully poetic in the way it puts that. The ASV puts it like this. To those who are elect exiles... So they take the idea of stranger and use the exile language, which is very, very controversial, but very powerful because it has a big Bible echo in the rest of the scripture. To the elect exiles, he says, of the dispersion in Pontus, etc., etc. And Peter is trying to get us to a big idea. And this big idea is something that every single follower of Jesus has got to get to grips with. We've got to manage this big idea. And the big idea is this. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Okay? We are in the world, 
but we're not of the world. Now, this is a sort of a paradox of faith. It's a tension of faith. In fact, when you read the Bible, you'll come across lots of ideas that sort of sit apart. They're almost not opposite ideas, but they're pulling in different directions. And by faith, we've got to sort of hold them in the middle. There's a lot of that going on in the Bible. In fact, learning to read with the tension or paradox of the Bible will really help you because there are some ideas that seem to sit here, and then there are some ideas that seem to sit here, but somehow we're being asked to pull them together. And this is one of those moments. It's a moment where Peter is saying, you are, at one level, citizens of the Roman Empire, you live under the Roman Empire. You live in a particular place, Cappadocia or Bithynia or Galatia. You're living in a particular place at a particular time. But at the same time, you are also citizens of the kingdom of God, right? So you're holding the idea that at one level, I'm here right now. But at another level, I have an alignment and a citizenship and a position somewhere else. So, so I'm, a, I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom. I was, I was born in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. And in that sense, that, that's been part of my journey. But when I became a Christian, I became a citizen of the kingdom of God. And in biblical terms, citizen of the kingdom trumps citizen of the United Kingdom. But here's the tension. I'm not allowed to ignore my citizenship of the United Kingdom because I'm a citizen of the kingdom, I've got to bring my life as a citizen of the kingdom of God into my life as a citizen of the United Kingdom. Amen. Now, now the, the tension is that ultimately I'm looking towards Jesus and his kingdom, but I'm also here right now in this kingdom. And I've got to live both ideas together. And, and if we think it's tough here, living in the United Kingdom with all the pressures that we're under, think of what it was like for the first century Christians, living under a totalitarian state. But by the time Peter writes, the Roman Empire stretches from Israel and just slightly more eastern border all the way across North Africa and the Mediterranean, all the way up to the northern border of England. The Romans uh, didn't invade Scotland. They sort of left the Scots to it. They sort of took one look at Scotland and thought, nah, I'll leave them there. It'll be fine. Um, and, and so the Romans stopped. But, but this is a massive empire. It's ruled by a totalitarian idea that, that Rome was a great place to live as long as you agreed with Rome. Uh, and anyone who disagreed was crushed mercilessly. So, so, so actually, it was civilized in some areas and totally uncivilized in many other areas. And the church is birthed in that Roman Empire. The church grows in that Roman Empire and the church expands in that Roman Empire. And these Christians are being asked to be good citizens of Rome while also being citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's truly difficult, both to manage the tension between the two kingdoms but also not to go to extremes. Because if I ignore the kingdom of God, then I end up living for the here and now. If I ignore the here and now, I end up head in the clouds and I'm of no use to anybody. And here's what I've discovered. When, when we're in moments of prosperity, we love the here and now. Oh, this is wonderful. This is it's great being here. Let's not leave. It's marvelous. And when we're under pressure, we're really glad of the idea that there is something else coming. And actually, 
life as a follower of Jesus is a constant negotiation of the two ideas. We are holding these ideas together. It's not simple. It doesn't sit neatly in a box. You've sort of got to manage these ideas constantly. That, that actually we mustn't get so consumed in the here and now that we forget then. We mustn't be so, so consumed in what is coming that we forget the here and now. And we've got to manage that and walk with that. Even if the here and now is good, it's bad, or it's ugly. We've got to manage that idea. And that's exactly what Peter is writing to these beautiful Christians about. You're in the world, but you're not of it. But even though you're not of it, you've still got to live in it. And you've got to find a way to represent Jesus within, within that context. Does that make sense? So when you're reading 1 Peter, think of the backdrop, Roman Empire, when you're reading 1 Peter, think that persecution is on the go now and the Christian church, as we understand it, is being more consistently persecuted by different groups and that actually Peter is speaking into that and he's speaking into a community that needs to be encouraged. So how does he encourage them? Well, he encourages them in terms of the introduction by three big ideas. And, uh, and sometimes what the writers do of the Bible, they introduce some stuff at the beginning, which isn't just interesting. It's sort of a way to read the, the book you're about to read. And so Peter is setting up three ideas that we're going to just briefly lean into that as you read 1 Peter, you'll see them pop up over and over and over again. He wants to remind you of these three ideas that are rooted in the Lord to help us as we go forward in his name, as we are negotiating being strangers in the night. All right? That makes sense. Okay. So here's the three ideas. Let's jump in uh, as we think about this. He speaks about being chosen out. He speaks about being strangers among, and he speaks about being scattered towards. Now, if you forget everything I say, and if you're, and there's a good chance you will forget a lot of the things that I say, because we'll, we'll move pretty quickly today. But try and remember these ideas as you're reading Peter, and not just Peter, as you're thinking about a biblical narrative, actually, these ideas will travel. We've been chosen out. Because of that, we are strangers among, but we are scattered towards. Now, if you can hook those ideas, they become a sort of a frame, which then as you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you can hook some stuff on. You can literally hang stuff on the frame of these three ideas. And I find this really helpful. I've sort of trained myself over the years to try and understand the big ideas of the author of a particular book so that as I understand both the backstory of the book and the intention of the author, I am then connecting to the threaded ideas in whatever they are writing. And if you do that, that will really help you. So let's jump in really quickly and, and give a bit of an overview of the three ideas. First of all, chosen out. We have been Chosen out. Now, I want, to, want you to think about a question when you think about being chosen out. And here's the question. Are we superior to or servant of? Are we superior to or servant of? I've been around the church a million years or so, and the idea of chosenness splits people and polarizes people. And here's the reason why. We get obsessed with the mechanics of how we have been chosen. Mm. 
So for some people, the thought of chosenness is, hold on a minute, John, are you saying that I've been chosen, but my husband hasn't? Are you saying that I've been chosen, but my son hasn't? Or I've been chosen, but my next door neighbor hasn't? That somehow God chooses one to go to heaven and one to go to hell. Now, now that's the sort of, that's the sort of head-hurting conversation we tend to have when we think of words like chosen or elect. Now, in a few moments, I, I just cannot answer all of those questions. Theologians have been wrestling for this for thousands of years. So uh, I, I'm not going to fix that quickly. But what has helped me is I don't really think of chosenness on an individual level. I tend to think of chosenness on a community level. Now, this helps me. The New Testament, almost every time it refers to being chosen, the language is plural. So in other words, Paul is saying when he speaks, and Peter is saying when he speaks, you have been chosen. Not just I have been chosen, we have been chosen. And, and there's this idea that, that chosenness isn't just about one individual as opposed to another, but it's really the idea of God raising up a community of faith that becomes his chosen community in order to do something on his behalf. Now, now that may or may not help you. It may create more questions for you, but that has really, really helped me. But here's the big thing that's going to help you when you think about chosenness. Trying to work out the mechanics of how you've been chosen is the wrong conversation. Whatever line you fall on, whether you think individually or corporately, it's the, the New Testament writers were not interested in that idea. They just spoke about being chosen and, and just left it. Didn't explain it. Because that's not the point of chosenness. The point of thinking about your chosenness is not, how was I chosen? The reason for our that we think about chosenness is, why was I chosen? What's the purpose of our chosenness? Right? If we, if we just focus on the mechanics, we end up in head-hurting conversations that we never really get the answer to because there's a constant ongoingness. But if I think, well, hold on, if I, even if I don't fully understand how I came to be chosen, but I understand why I have been chosen, the purpose of our chosenness, it suddenly transforms the conversation. The New Testament writers weren't, weren't so much concerned about how you were chosen, but they were concerned about why you were chosen. Okay? Now, if we don't understand that, here's what can happen. Chosenness can either make us arrogant or humble. So the arrogance of chosenness is, is this sense of, I'm special, I'm better, I, God has picked me. Look what God has done for me. Now, I know that may not be the experience of people in this room, but I have encountered that mentality in the church over the years where people have seen their chosenness almost as a superiority to others instead of understanding the humility of that chosenness. When we were breaking bread in both services, both services, I was overwhelmed with a sense emotionally of, of I don't deserve any of this. I do not deserve this bread and I do not deserve this cup and I do not deserve to have all the things that Jesus has given me by his grace and by his mercy. So when I think of my chosenness, however I understand it, it doesn't make me arrogant, it makes me humble. And I go, my goodness, what, what did I do? to deserve being part of this wonderful community of faith called the church. 
And actually, if we grasp that, it keeps us away from arrogance and superiority, and it leads us into humility. Jesus tells a story, and remember, it's a parable, so Jesus is the one rocking this story. He's the one making up the words in this story, and he tells this story about a Pharisee, and a Pharisee is like a very religious person. Uh, the word Pharisee literally means separated one. And Jesus tells this parable, and the parable begins. The Pharisee stood by himself. So he's in the temple praying, but he stands by himself. And listen to the words of the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thanks for that. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even even like this tax collector. Now look what's happening there. Someone who believes they are chosen is interpreting their chosenness as superiority. Whereas Jesus wants us to interpret our, our chosenness as an opportunity to serve our world. We haven't been chosen so that we can stand apart from the world and say, oh, thank God I'm not like them. But we have been chosen so that we can serve the world that we have been called out of. Come on now. It's not stand apart and I'm better than them. No, no. If we've been called out, whatever that means, whatever way you understand that, it's so that we can serve the world that we have been called out of. Listen to what Peter says. Listen to these words. Peter says this, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. Now, let me just pause there for just a moment. Anyone listening to Peter's words who was from a Jewish background would have light bulbs flashing everywhere because Peter is borrowing almost a direct quotation from the Torah from the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 19, God has rescued his people from slavery. They're now standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and God declares them to be his special possession. Literal language, his special possession. And he declares them to be his kingdom of priests. What that means is, carry me to the world. Everyone, everyone, every man, woman, boy and girl was to be a priest to carry God to the world. It's not the ceremonial priest. It's the priest of mission in Exodus 19. And then he says, and I want you to be my holy nation. Okay? So the idea is there. Now watch this. God says you're my special possession. But he doesn't stop there. It's not a full stop. It's a comma. You're my special possession to be what? To be a kingdom of priests. What's that idea? To export me to the world? And to be a holy nation, what does that mean? To example me to the world. So he didn't choose this group of people so that they could stand apart from the world and go, oh wow, aren't we special? Isn't this cool? Isn't this marvelous? Poor old world. But he chose that community so that in understanding how chosen they are, what would they do? They would go back to their world and take the God who chose them back to that world so that that world could experience him. At least that was the plan. Are you with me? And Peter picks this up because Peter doesn't stop. Peter doesn't stop. Look, look what he does. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, comma, that you may declare the praises of God who called you out of darkness 
and into his wonderful light. In other words, Peter is absolutely making sure the church understands your chosenness is not so that you can stand apart and be special. Your chosenness is so that you can declare. You're a hard crowd to impress. So how we understand the mechanics of our cho chosenness is not the issue. It is important to grasp the reason for our chosenness. We have been chosen to be the kingdom of priests, to be the holy nation, to be his light in the darkness. And if you come to our home, you'll, 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 you'll see, the, see these cups. I think you stick those cups up for me. That'd be brilliant. Now, that the cup that you're looking at on the left-hand side sits in our little travel corner in our home. And uh, we bought it in Prague. I took Don to, to Prague for a special birthday celebration. And we have a little travel corner. We just pick up little knickknacks. They're not really that expensive, but they sit in our little travel cabinet. And we just remind ourselves of all the places we've been to. We bought this little cup that's on the left-hand side as you look at it. And it's a gorgeous little cup, but we've never drank out of it once. It just sits in the cabinet. On display. I, I took it out of the cabinet to take that picture. Just sits there. Now, the other cup is one of my three favorite cups. I have a Liverpool cup. No one drinks out of that cup in my house. I have a Winnie the Pooh cup. And I have a Hello Sausage cup, because I love sausage dogs. And pepperoni and salami. Uh, they, they drink along with me when I'm drinking out of this cup. And, and this is my cup. Now, this is in the cupboard. And I use that cup virtually every day. And actually, that picture is the challenge of chosenness. If we're not careful, we turn chosenness into something that's displayed instead of something that is used. God hasn't chosen you so that you can sit in a cabinet and look good. And just enjoy. Hey, isn't it cool that God bought me and here I am in a special cabinet? No, 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 no. He hasn't picked you so that you could sit in a special cabinet. He's picked you so that every day he can pick you up with his hand and use you to display his glory. And I, I don't know about you, but I know which one I want to be. I don't want to sit in the cabinet ga gathering dust and looking good. I would rather have a few stains and a few cracks and a few bits and pieces going on in my world, but be used by God that shows his glory. Amen. So Peter's saying to the church, you're chosen out, not just to be special and say, oh, look at me, cool me. No, no, but to be used in the hand of God to display his glory, even in the Roman Empire and even under persecution. Amen. Wow. Here's the second idea really quickly. We are strangers among. Question I want to ask you here when thinking about strangers among is this idea. Are we distinct or distant? Distinct or distant? Now, when I was growing up in church, distinct was distant. So the way I was taught, and I don't want to criticize my upbringing because I'm very, very blessed by the upbringing that I had, but the theology that we had was in order to really be distinct as a Christian, we must not in any way, shape, or form mix with the world. So I was pretty good at sport. We were discouraged from playing sport. We were discouraged from further education. We were discouraged from having non-Christian friends. All of that sort of stuff was the conversation narrative in my world. Now, you, you may not agree with that, but I, I, I don't agree with it, but I understand it. The logic was, if we stand apart, we stand out. 
right? That's the logic, and it's a good logic, but it's not biblical logic. In a biblical term, our standing outness, forgive me, I make up words, our standing outness, our distinctiveness is seen not by standing apart, but by mixing in. Maybe an amen? What do you reckon? Come on now. Okay, come on. Now look at Peter's language again. First Peter chapter 1. Peter says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Look at this now. Watch this. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, listen, you might hear an echo, be holy because I am holy. Now look at this. Peter is now, he's borrowed from Exodus when he thinks about chosen out. Now he's borrowing from Leviticus. I'm in Leviticus at the moment in my everyday devotions. What a book. Come on. Exciting book. Come on now. I've just got past the clean and the unclean section. Oh, Marvelous. Okay, but here's one of the big ideas. You will hear three distinctive moments in the book of Leviticus. It says this, be holy because I am holy. So here's the thing. In Leviticus, God is asking Israel to do some interesting stuff that 21st century people wouldn't necessarily get or understand. But he gives the rationale. He says, even if this doesn't make sense to you, do it because by doing it, you are being holy because I am holy. All right? So, so there's a sense in which Israel was to be distinct in their behavior and that behavior was reflecting the distinctiveness of God in the way that they behave. Now, I want you to notice something. Watch this. This is powerful in terms of your thinking, hopefully, is that, remember, the Lord gave what we call the law or instruction to Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that happens, starts at Exodus 19 into Exodus 20. That's where all of that begins. But they don't enter the land of promise until they get to the book of Joshua about 40 years later. Now, here's what I want you to see. And this is very, very important. The distinctiveness of the people of God was not in where they lived, but in how they lived. Right? So in other words, God gave them something that would make them distinct wherever they lived. Right? Now here's the danger. We think, well, we've got to get to the land of promise in order to be distinct. No, no, no. They could be distinct in the wilderness. They could be distinct as they traveled. They could be distinct anywhere because their distinctiveness was not defined by a border, but by truth of Torah. Are you with me? Now, this is a massive idea because when we get to the church of Jesus Christ, we're going to be a globally scattered community. We're going to be a community that is infiltrating the whole world. And if we get stuck on a place, then we're never going to have the confidence to live as strangers in or among our world. And so the idea was, if you get this in your heart, then wherever you live, you'll be distinct. Your distinctiveness is not because of a border. Your distinctiveness is not even because of a unique place of worship. Your distinctiveness is because you are being holy as I am holy. Come on. 
That's what Peter's doing. He's grabbing now an Exodus idea. He's grabbed a Leviticus idea and he's dragging it forward into the church of Jesus Christ. Because here's what he's saying to these wonderful believers who are scattered. He said, wherever you are, you can be in the best definition of the word strange. Now, he doesn't mean weird, but he means other. Other. Unlike those you are with. I know it, most people in the room will know I'm a Liverpool supporter. I had to drop it in at least once. Come on. Have to give me a break. It's Jesus, my wife, my children. No, no, Liverpool, my children. Anyway, uh, anyway, it, it's one of my big passions. It's in, there, it's in there somewhere. And I got to go and watch Liverpool a couple of years ago, and they were playing a team called Napoli from Italy. And Napoli playing blue and Liverpool playing red. So at Liverpool's ground, I was, in the, I was in the bit behind the goal, the cop, the big sort of, that's where the heavy, heavy supporters are. And I, I managed to get a ticket in there. Everybody's going for it. It was amazing. All these beautiful seats and nobody sits down, all standing up the whole game. And then you've got two sides of the ground are all Liverpool. And then the bit behind the goal is Napoli. All the Napoli supporters are supposed to be behind the goal. And there were 6,000 of them. And the noise they were making was fantastic. And Napoli had the audacity to score first. We're now 1 0 down. When they scored, the whole of that blue behind the goal went bonkers. They were going, flags in the air, scarves, they were jumping up and down. The singing was magnificent. They were fantastic that night. Absolutely amazing. But I expected that. That's where all the Napoli supporters are. But as they, Napoli scored, something amazing happened. Some of the Liverpool supporters had sold their tickets to Napoli supporters. <laughs> So in the red bit there, not, no, no, no Napoli supporters were in the cup. That, that just wouldn't happen, right? So they're not there. But in the, that side of the ground, all the red, and all the red in that side of the ground, little specks of blue appeared. And I went, may God have mercy on their soul. Lord, protect them from all harm. Keep them from being dismembered and thrown onto the pitch, right? Because uh, you think, oh, my goodness, there. But it was amazing. The, the blue behind the goal sort of stood out because that was blue. But what really stood out, out that day was the blue and the red. Uh, and the, the guys in the red bits were like jumping up and down with their scarves and, and, and pushing them around. It was just amazing. And these little specks of blue were distinct because they were in the red. Come on now. Now, when we're all together, are we distinct? Yes, we are. Of course we are. We should be. People should come into this community and feel that we are distinct in so many ways. But our dynamic distinctiveness is not by gathering together and separating from the world. Our dynamic distinctiveness is when we infiltrate the world. When we wave the blue in the red. Now, let me flick that road. When we wave the red and the blue. Come on. Are you with me? And that's what Peter's saying. You're strangers, not in a weird sense. You're strangers in that. You're sort of Napoli supporters in the Liverpool end. But if you understand who you are in Christ that you're suffering for Jesus, that Jesus is coming again and that Jesus is with you, you're able to wave your blue scarf and understand that you're making a dynamic impact in the red world. Are you with me? All right, here's the last idea and I'm done. You still, still there? Still okay? Brilliant. Last one, scattered towards. 
Here's the question I want you to think about. Is that a threat or an opportunity? Threat or opportunity? Now, here's the interesting thing. When Peter writes to the church, he writes to those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Bit of a mouthful, all of that, right? But, but actually, that's really, really important because, again, Peter's doing some really clever, cool stuff here. Everything he's writing is linking to something else. So if, if you read those words and you've ever read the book of Acts in the New Testament, you may have heard an echo. Now, you may not have done, but you may have heard an echo. So if you go back to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, fills the disciples. They spill out into the street, start to speak. In fact, Peter is the one speaking. The man writing this letter is the one speaking on the day of Pentecost. And it tells us that a whole bunch of people from different parts of the world heard them speaking in tongues, but heard their own language being used and, and heard God glorified. And here's, here's the languages. Here's some of the languages that were heard. Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, two other names are mentioned. In fact, there's 17 potential languages listed in Acts chapter 2. The, the two other names that are interesting for us, or interesting for a Bible nerd like me maybe, are Pamphylia and Phrygia. Now, why that's interesting is because Pamphylia and Phrygia is Galatia. So, if you put it all together, listen, Peter writes to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. On the day of Pentecost, people heard tongues in Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Galatia. Ooh. I thought it was better than that. I really did. I thought that was a great, a great link for you. John, what's your point? The point is this, that actually, even on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is signaling a scattering. In fact, the Holy, I would argue that the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost because Jerusalem is going to be filled with international pilgrims. There's going to be people in Jerusalem from all over the world for Shavuot, for, for Pentecost. They're going to be there to worship God. And the Holy Spirit just happens to come when Jerusalem is filled with all these global pilgrims. And what's, what's going to happen? The global pilgrims are not going to stay in Jerusalem. Guess where they're going to go? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're going to go back to their world, scattered by the Holy Spirit. Scattered. Positively. Now, persecution sometimes scatters people in a negative way, but these are scattered by the power of God. And the scatteredness that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter is hinted at massively at the day of Pentecost, where the same man just happens to be preaching the main sermon. Is that cool or what? It's just amazing. I just think Bible nerds of the world rejoice. It's marvelous stuff. I, I love this. I love this. But look at this again. So here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to these words. I'm almost done. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, listen, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, again, Bible nerds of the world, here we go. One more link for you. Well, two more links that are dynamic, and I think Peter's dropping these in. Peter says, you are foreigners and exiles. Any Jewish person listening to that will be transported back to the prophets in the Old Testament where Israel were exiled into Babylon. And they were exiled for 70 years. And some people, including me, would argue they did some of their best global work in exile. They were actually doing what they should have been doing. And they were sort of forced to do it by God in exile. God tells Jeremiah three times in Jeremiah 29, I sent them. I exiled them. Right? Why? Because God never wanted Israel to stay behind a border. He wanted Israel to go to Babylon. He wanted Israel to go to Persia. He wanted Israel to go to the kingdoms of the world, not because they were exiled by force, but because they understood the heart of God, that God always wanted a global scattering of his idea and of his people to the world. Are you, are you with me? So when Peter uses exile language or foreigner language, oh, oh my goodness, we're back to Babylon. And here's a cool little thought. Where's Peter writing from? Where does he write this letter from? You go to the end of 1 Peter, uh, his letter. He tells us he's writing from Babylon. How cool is that? That's amazing. Come on, people. Where was Babylon? Babylon was Rome. See, he wasn't literally in Babylon. He was using Babylon as an exile idea. The heart of Rome, this massive empire that stretched across the Mediterranean and North Africa world all the way to the border of Scotland. And he's saying, God wants to scatter you to the whole of the empire. He wants to scatter you so that the kingdom of God will come to every nation that is enslaved under the empire. You have been sent as an exile. Wow. And then here's the other cool reference. Did you notice he says, he said as foreigners and exiles, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Now, if you know Jesus, you've heard that before. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. Jesus is virtual. Uh, Peter is literally quoting Jesus word for word. So he's linking exile, scatteredness in a negative way, but he's making it positive. God has an exiled us as slaves. He has sent us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he picks up the words of Jesus and he says, let your light shine. Let your deeds be seen. Let, let the opportunity, not the threat. Yes, yes, you're in Rome. Yes, you're, you're blue in the red end. Yes, yes, you're strangers. Yes, there's a sense in which the world is against us. But he said, I have scattered you into that world so that you will carry me to that world and so that that world will be enriched and empowered through you. Does that make sense? All right. A few years ago, I had the joy of going to Ghana. My first big international trip. Loved it. I was there for a month. Anyone from, a, from Ghana or your families from Ghana? Just a couple. Hey, hey we're sort of matching. Come on. Stand up. Stand up. Look at that. Look at that. It's a thing. Look at that. Come on. It's a sign from God I'm supposed to use this as 
Bless you. Grab a seat, grab a seat. Bless you, bless you. And I went to Ghana, 1990, and I stayed in Kumasi. Love Fufu and the whole thing going on. It was just a marvelous, marvelous trip. Really amazing trip. I was just a young minister. Had an amazing time. I preached 29 times in 27 days. Incredible experience. But while I was there, please forgive me. Hear me right to the end. Do not react. Listen to me to the end. While in Ghana, I became aware of my whiteness. Now, now living in a multicultural nation, multicultural city like London and a multicultural place like Watford, it's hard to believe that I grew up in an almost entirely white neighborhood in Belfast. So the most exotic we got in the area where I lived was a Chinese restaurant. That was it. I mean, that was the only cultural diversity in our, in our town. Honestly, I'm not trying to be funny. I grew up in an entirely white community. My church was entirely white. I went to a secondary school with 1,200 boys in it, all white. So if you'd have spoke to me as a 15-year-old, I would never have thought of my whiteness. Because I never thought, I mean, genuinely didn't, didn't think about being white. I was male. I was Protestant. I was a Pentecostal. I was a Liverpool supporter. You know, so I, those were the labels I would have described myself. I wouldn't have described myself as white, right? But I remember going to Ghana and I lived in Kumasi, and there were, I was the only white person in the whole area. And I suddenly became conscious of how white I was. <laughs> and initially, let me, and I know many of you will understand this, so please do not hear what I'm saying, right? Do not be misled by this. I, I became very self-conscious. And I, I suddenly was very insecure. I'd never felt like that before. And I, it gave me a new empathy for people from different backgrounds and different color in my world. And I suddenly realized, oh my goodness, that's that how my friends feel in a predominantly white world where, where, I, where I lived. And it was really strange. And I, I felt very self-conscious. I felt very nervous. I felt very insecure. I felt like as the only white person. I wasn't under physical threat, but I just, I felt very awkward. Right? I felt weird and strange. And I know that sounds preposterous. But the thing that changed it one day was I was walking down to the church and the school, the local school, all the kids were out on their break. And when they saw the white guy, <laughs> so he's weird looking. Uh, they saw this. They all just rushed out of the, the, the courtyard, the playground, and towards me. And I'm thinking, all these kids, a bit like that picture, all these kids just charging towards me. I think, oh, what's going to happen? And they all crowded around me, and they were holding my hand. They were, some were grabbing onto my legs. They were, they were hands up my shirt. It was all going on. It was absolutely amazing. But listen, it broke something. Honestly, and I know this sounds weird, but it broke something in me. It, it took me from a moment where I felt threatened, and I don't mean that physical well-being threatened, but I just felt insecure, to a place, hold on a minute, I'm different. My difference can perhaps not be a threat, but could be an opportunity. And the second thing that I realized, I picked up a ball, started kicking a ball. Whoa, I was now the hero. It was like amazing. Kids wanted to play with me. And suddenly I moved from feeling threatened because of my difference to saying, hold on, this is an opportunity. An opportunity to serve, an opportunity to give, an opportunity to connect, an opportunity to learn an opportunity to grow, an opportunity 
to be generous with who we are. And I know it's a dodgy example. I was nervous about giving that example today, but that's sort of like us as followers of Jesus. You can look at your difference as a threat. The world's against us. Everybody hates us. They're all trying to kill us. Nobody likes us. Now, if we live like that, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to withdraw. We're going to pull in. We're going to hide. And we're going to refuse to engage. But, but without ignoring the real threat that's out there in some Christian communities, we want to be people who go, hold on, this is an opportunity. Our difference at work our difference in the street, our difference in my postcode, my difference in my village, my difference in my apartment block, my difference in my world actually gives me opportunity. And that's what, Paul, that's what Peter's saying to the church. A church under threat, the man writing this will eventually be executed brutally as a follower of Jesus. But before he dies, he reminds them, you're chosen out, you're strangers among, but you're scattered towards. And he's saying to the church, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them that just as they are suffering for their faith, Jesus suffered for them. And he reminds them, listen, even in your short-term suffering, and I know it's, we're not minimizing suffering, but it's relatively short-term in the light of eternity. Peter reminds us that one day, one day Jesus will return. And one day he'll make sense of all of this, the stuff that we cannot make sense of. And if we will hold our nerve and hold our faith, then we will be carriers of his glory in our world. Now, my world, your world looks very different from theirs. But the ideas that connect us have not changed. You have been chosen out. Because of that chosenness, you're strange. But your strangeness is not to make us weird. It's so that being scattered, we can carry Christ to our world, whatever that world looks like. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me? You've been very kind in listening to me. I hope it's made sense. We're going to sing a beautiful song together as we finish our day in this wonderful community. People downstairs in the overflow, people online, people in this room. If you're in Jesus, if you're in Christ, you have been chosen out. Don't worry about how that happened. Don't get sidetracked by a cul-de-sac conversation. Lean in to the glorious truth of why we've been chosen. Because of that chosenness, we are strangers among. We don't even need to try and be strange. Just by virtue of the fact that you now have a citizen of the kingdom of God passport, you're a stranger. You're here, but you don't belong here. And we, as the community of faith, are to be scattered among. Scattered towards those we work with. Scattered towards those we live with. Scattered to the everyday. Scattered to the ordinary. Scattered to the routine. Scattered to men and women who, if they don't see the blue amongst the red, 
they may never know that there is an alternative that awaits them. That they too, as we have been chosen, they too can enter into chosenness. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, in the overflow online. Thank you for choosing us. However we understand that, thank you. We didn't deserve any of it. We still don't deserve it. But you have chosen us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that that chosenness is not to sit in a display cabinet, but is to be an instrument in your hand. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for myself, that as we live as strangers among the world, that Lord, we will carry your light, we will carry your love, we will carry your mercy, your goodness, your faithfulness, and your loving kindness. And that Lord, in carrying you to our world, though our world is full of threat, though our world is full of trouble, though our world is full of difficulty, Lord, we choose to see the opportunity rather than the threat. Lord, may you work in us. May you work through us for your honor and for your glory. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that your light will shine in us. Your light will shine through us. And that men and women, boys and girls will see our good deeds. They will glorify our Father in heaven. And like us, they will enter into freedom and chosenness in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed and encouraged by what you've heard. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, Wellspring Church, or how you can grow with others in faith, connect with us by clicking the link in the episode description or by joining us on Sundays at 9am and 11am in person and online.